welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Ha ha ha. Good morning, everybody. Unless you're listening to this in the afternoon, then it's obviously not morning, but it's morning for me, fairly early. Uh, But I wanted to get up, get a podcast knocked out. I've had guests on the last several podcasts, so I kind of want to get back to the roots um, of the podcast and actually get into some some Q and A's and some little a little bit more uh, in depth questions from you all out there. So. I uh, got up this morning, made a cup of coffee, and drank it. Meanwhile, watched a lot of your questions rolling off the Instagram account, and uh, we're gonna jump into some of this, some of these subjects. Um, there's been several good ones already, so we'll see how many we can get through and see where this goes. And um, there's a few other things I've kind of wanted to talk about along the way. Um, I guess I should probably do that first, otherwise. I'd, will for surely forget about it by the end of the thing. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about that was on my mind here a few days ago was um, one of the kind of our loyal followers, uh, Ryan, was actually, um, I saw a picture that he posted on his Instagram because he was going to go out and do some trial and error. And I saw him post a picture of several fletch configurations that he had um, and he said he was going to go out and work on the hill method so um, for those of you listening who don't know what the hill method is the hill method is a technique that I started um, I kind of bring bring to light so to speak um, years ago maybe 10 years ago now um, I wrote an article called mastering the hill and the hill is essentially um, a way of monitoring what your arrows are doing from a left to right impact point of view. And that left to right impact is really a direct reflection of how the arrow's spine or um, essentially the stiffness or the weakness of that arrow, we call that arrow spine, um, how that arrow's spine directly relates to your bow that you're shooting in that particular combination of what your draw length is, what your poundage is, how that arrow's built, um, the type of cam system that you have on your bow, because some cam systems are a lot like you know cars. They um, some are a lot more aggressive and have a lot more energy um, immediately. Some have a lot you know kind of a lot slower. Um, draw force curve to where the energy transfer is you know is more like kind of a slow gradual um, curve whereas some um, deliver a tremendous amount of energy within the first few inches of the power stroke some continually deliver more as the as that power stroke or that string strokes that arrow through your bow, some of it continually ramps up and delivers a tremendous amount at the very end. Um, and all of that is relative to when you pull your bow back, how that bow feels. Some bows, when you go to pull them, it takes a lot of effort to get that bow to start to 
to break over. It's almost like the majority of that holding weight is within those first few inches of the draw. Whereas some bows continually, as you pull them back, it's, it's fairly easy and it gets harder and harder and harder and harder and harder. And then it just immediately dumps off and is, and is easy. Um, so those different types of draw force curves affect how, um, your arrow reacts to your bow. So spine is relative and horizontal impact or left to right impact is, um, is super important because if your arrow isn't perfectly spine matched to your particular bow, then you're not going to have the best or the most optimum results out of that arrow um, or out of your bow setup entirely until those two things are are combined correctly. So um, in that article, I kind of talked through how I check for that uh, horizontal impact and how I'm monitoring your left to right variance. So essentially, um, after Ryan had been here um, for a few days of schooling, he was going back to try to do some trial and error. Um, but the problem with the way he was going to do it was he actually was going to include too many variables off at the very beginning of this testing. And this is important for you listening out there because I know that I've talked a lot about uh, horizontal impact and how to work on that. I know I've talked about walk back tuning. I know I've talked about paper tuning. I know I've talked about the importance of trial and error with different types of arrow shafts, even though they're the same spine. I've also talked about how um, sometimes you need trial and error with different spines of the same arrow. And then one step further than all that is I've talked about the importance of trial and error with fletch configuration. So um, when you're trying to and when you're trying to realize what is the absolute best combination, and this is, you know, this is more of an intermediate to um, advanced level um, for the listeners out there, but each of these minor things all can can just micro-tune and just micro-condense those groups. Um, small things like a difference of 20 grains in your point weight, um, a difference in um, your fletching length or the type of fletch that you use or how many veins you use or the offset that you're using, you know, even, even as much so as how your knock fits on your serving. Um, there's all these small little micro tuning things that you can do depending on how advanced and how precise you really want to get with your groups. So, you know, some people are just happy with being able to shoot the white dot on a block target every single time. Some people are wanting to shoot within that and never have an arrow touch the outside of that. So depending on how big your magnifying glass is and what you're happy with or not happy with, um, it's going to really determine how many of these things that you do. With Ryan, what I saw him posting was he was really trying to um, post a picture showing the fact that he was about ready to do um, a lot of homework, you know, which was definitely cool. He was 
he was making a very, very important step, um, you know, in doing the homework and in doing trial and error. Um, but the picture that he had posted was a picture with, um, he really took um, two different types of arrows and took like three of each arrow and broke them down into different fletch configurations and then he had different point weights and then he had different spot um different actual diameter shafts so then he was kind of shooting them all down there and the problem with that is with the hill method you really to really know how to adjust your your bow and essentially what you're doing with the hill method is the fastest way to see results is by changing the poundage on your bow because poundage immediately um, starts to have a reflection on how your spine is reacting um, to that bow. And you can really improve or um, or disimprove the your groups very fast just by changing your poundage. So it gives you a starting point. So um, let's say I have an arrow that um, is cut at, cut at a length that I need. And on my bow, I've taken my bow out of the box and backed it down three or four turns just because that's where I'm comfortable shooting. So what I would do is I'd take that bow uh, or that arrow and I would shoot it down at a fresh target. And I'd probably shoot you know at least a good dozen arrows. Um, what I do when I'm shooting on that fresh target is if I make a marginal shot, a shot that's not so good, I'll actually just kind of make note of that, look at it with my binoculars, um, go down, and I'll take a marker and I'll normally just either draw a circle around that arrow hole or make a cross through that arrow hole just to identify the fact I don't really want to include that particular arrow into my equation just because it wasn't a very good shot. But with the good shots, what you're going to notice is after you've shot a dozen or two dozen or three dozen arrows, you're going to have a series of arrow holes. And if your arrow holes are stretching horizontally across the paper, um, a lot of times that's an immediate identifier of how your spine is reacting. So then at that point, what I would do is change the poundage on my bow. I would tighten my bow up maybe three pounds. Um, and then do this process again with a fresh piece of paper, um, preferably. And you'll make note, even if the poundage is heavier than really what you want to shoot, it's at least giving you, giving you an identifier of how is that arrow responding. If all of a sudden your groups, even though your poundage is more than what you want, your groups have just come together instantly. What that's telling you is as you increased your poundage, because you're adding poundage to the bow, you're actually weakening how you're making that arrow weaker. You're weakening how that arrow is going through the bow because you have more force pushing on it. So the spine is breaking down more. So, you know, if that was the case where more poundage was uh, showing you those results, at that point, at least you know that your arrow at the weight that you like is a little bit too stiff for you. So at that point, you can either go back to your desired weight and add about 25 grains um, or so to that arrow shaft, or you can shoot the weight that you found. And the opposite would be true um, you know, if, 
if you didn't have good results when you added poundage on your bow, but then you also tried decreasing your poundage and maybe your groups got better that way, you know, that would show you that your arrow spine was too weak. And when you decreased your poundage, you actually got your bow to match your arrow a little better. But what's important is when you're doing that hill test, you really want to do the hill test with with one full set of of um, arrows. Now, if you want to do the hill test in relation to spine, um, what I've done in the past is I've I actually have um, certain arrows where I have arrows made exactly the same in one spine, say a 410, and then I have um, or a 420, say. Then I'll have that exact same arrow um, made in a 470 spine, and then I'll have that exact same arrow in a 380 spine. So in that case, I'll shoot all three sets of those arrows downrange, and it'll show me which spine is the best um, compatible with my bow. It gives me the best starting point. Then from there... I would start, you know, once I found something I was really happy with when it came to spine and adjusting my poundage to where my groups were, where I felt they were the tightest. At that point, I would then take that arrow and I would try different configurations on that arrow, um, vein configurations. Or then I would try different point weight conversions on that arrow. But if you're going to go out and really try to see what what is the best hill or best spine match for your bow. If you go out there and you're shooting multiple diameter shafts and you're shooting multiple fletchings or multiple point weights on that shaft before you've done the process to to really narrow down your spine, um, then it's going to possibly get more frustrating than the way this method was really intended. So um, his end results were great. Um, his end results, uh, you know, you can see the picture. Um, it's, it's Rhino, R-Y-N-O underscore 48. Um, he posted this picture on April 17th. Um, he's got a picture of his bow on a stand with some arrows and a big wad of arrows in the center of the dot after going through the testing. Because um, I actually sent him a text message and said, "Hey, dude, let's um, narrow down your your um, your factors in this test because having too many factors in the test um, is going to end up probably getting you more frustrated um, than than happy." To be honest with you, just because it doesn't work, you know, like that when it comes to testing. I've got a simple rule in archery. It's important to repeat it. It's anytime you change anything, you change everything. That's a simple rule. It's one that you should always go by. You know, if all you do is change the type of material on your D loop, that changes everything. Certain materials, you know, say you had a poly braid versus um, a Dyneema braid. Well, you know, Dyneema is going to be a lot slipperier, it's not near as stiff. It's more likely to have stretch over time. You know, you look at something like a D-braid, works a lot better on a hinge. Um, however, it doesn't have the longevity when it comes to wear, um, wearability. So, you know, how that D-braid comes out of your release head compared to, you know, a, a polycore 
uh, D loop, which is a lot more durable. Um, however, um, you know, on certain jaw type releases, it's going to be important to have that durability. Also, some some releases on the market have a teeny little gap in between the the jaws and the poly core is important because the inner twisted core of the poly loop, um, as you put tension on it, it actually compresses and it expands in size so that it's not going to slip through your jaw. Um, so small things just like that anytime you change anything you change everything it's an important rule so when you're trying to do trial and error which is definitely a valuable step ahead for any archer listening um, it's valuable to to be able to learn some of this stuff on your own and try things and see if they do work or if they don't work Um, doing that is an important step but if you add too many things in at a time um it'll just it'll start to get a little bit too complicated it's kind of like if you go to ikea you get a furniture set you know they've kind of simplified it now where you know one bag is labeled one and one bag is labeled two and one bag is labeled three and it pretty much says okay if you're at step one on the directions these screws and nuts and washers in bag one is for this step you know if you took all five of those bags and pile poured them into a pile now you've got to spend a lot of time trying to figure out what's the difference between a this screw and that screw and this nut and that nut and everything else so by just minimizing those things and finding out what spine works best for you then you figure out okay if i tweak my point weights just a little bit what works best for me now what if what if um, today I go out and I shoot you know makes three arrows with this fletch and three arrows with that fletch and three arrows with this fletch? Let me shoot them and see which one works better, and then not only do it that day but do it in a day where maybe there's a little wind, and see okay well even though this four fletch might shoot better for me um, on a perfectly calm day when it got windy it had twice as much drift so then you at least are able to have your you know your seesaw for your decisions and start to like balance that thing and let it tip the one way or the other so you can make um you know a very educated decision on what really is the best combination for what you're doing um the next thing i wanted to mention here before i jump into some of these questions is um i actually did get um a prototype of two prototypes actually of the new mini silverback um this is pretty exciting um it's it's really a silverback with um a smaller finger hole same you know i literally um had a finger hole made for sharon and little dud so this is going to be an ideal release for um youth or women so um, unfortunately I've had to kind of make a limited run on these. I don't know. Just keep your eye out for sure on my Instagram account. If I post that we're going to start a waiting list for the mini silverbacks, um, I, you know, I want to make sure you get one. I'm not going to make that many to begin with just because, uh, once again, it's, it's inventory and I'm kind of trying to feel out the market of how many women or youth are going to want this. Uh, really, the main reason I'm even doing it is because I need I need to have a few dozen uh, just for my own students. So 
this will be be a good opportunity for you to get one. Um, and I know that right now they've they've already been machined. They're actually out at the anodizers. Um, so as soon as anodizers done putting the the silver on there, um, and we get them back and assembled, we'll be ready to rock. Um, I don't really want to take people's money before I have them available and to make sure all's good. Um, so I may or may not do a pre-sale, uh, but definitely keep your eyes open for that if you have interest. Um, the first question here I'm going to jump into is from the Adam Brister. Um, so he's asking, and I'm just going to go through these in order. He's asking, um, he said he wants to hear about the site that me and Levi are cooking up with Sherlock. So um, hopefully the first generation of this site should be in both of our hands here fairly quickly. Um, I checked on this just the other day and I know that there was progress being made. Um, so with this site, uh, Sherlock pretty much um, came to Levi and I both to talk to us about how we should, um, how we both would be willing to go forward in a site design. So we, it, we, we were pretty much in a, in a room for almost a full day, just going through what we like and what we didn't like about all different sites on the market. Um, we actually had a ton of different sites in there. There's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of sites on the market right now that are much higher quality than years ago. It's pretty it's a great time to be a consumer because there's a lot of good sites out there. Um, but from what I've experienced, some sites have things I really like, and then all of a sudden they've got. Sorry about that. Then they've got things that uh, that are frustrating, and you know sometimes it takes just one thing that just wasn't thought out right or wasn't done correctly on a site for it to be super frustrating. Um, you know, one little piece has the wrong size screw, or one little piece is plastic and it breaks off, and then you're screwed, or doesn't level very easy with your third axis, or you know, when you go to click the site back, you know, to lock it in, it kind of jumps a little bit, you know, so stuff like that's just really frustrating. Um, so Levi and I have pretty much combined our thoughts and um, there was several things that Levi came up with that, uh, you know, I kind of looked at him and I said, yeah, damn, why aren't, why haven't we thought of that? You know, that would be cool if we can do that. And some of this stuff we may not be able to do until we're actually making them. We don't really know, but these first sites that are being made are kind of all being made, um, as a one-off. So they're, I know they're typically when you do it that way, they're, they're, um, extremely expensive to get these first ones done but the plan is for him and I to to both get these sites um, that's pretty much a collaboration of things he wants things that I want um, and then we're gonna get them out there and shoot them and you know it's gonna be important that we put arrows through them enough and set them up shoot them enough need to adjust them need to readjust them so that we can really check durability and put some time behind them um, but really the concept and one of the things that's most important for me, um, just like with my arrow rest, is I really want a one-stop shop for a site. Um, so one of the things that I fought for the most with this site 
Um, and really a reason why I've just stuck with the same type of site um, for so many years. The site on my bow right now is almost 20 years old. Um, but it's a Sherlock. It was bulletproof. And, um, you know, it was expensive for its time. Where, But nowadays, it, you know, that price range is starting to become a lot more apparent. So people are, you know, the price range is where people will accept it a lot better. Whereas, you know, 20 years ago, people were like, holy cow, you know, 250 bucks for a site or whatever um, was kind of off the charts. But I really wanted a site that allowed me to shoot target archery or hunting with the same site to be able to have an easy removable head um, or aperture piece that allowed you to go from a scope directly to a, a multi-pin uh, site. So ideally, that's one of the things that this is, has to have. It, it has to have the ability to go from a hunting site directly to a target site. And then with that, um, since Levi and I are both different in the types of archery that we prefer to shoot, we need that we need the target version to be able to immediately um, give people the option of whether or not they want apertures or aiming apparatuses specific for field archery, target archery, or 3D. Um, and then within those categories, you know what um, ease of changing those things out. And then also, um, you know, when it comes to the the actual extension extension bar or extension block being able to have something that was um, target friendly as well as immediately hunting friendly that allowed you to put it on your hunting bow and uh, be able to have it adapt to having a quiver next to it, et cetera, et cetera. And then a lot came into fact of, you know, importance of setup um, and how easy it could set up for second, third axis, and then obviously the weight. So, um, the intention here is to come out with something that's like kind of a, you know, a one-stop shop. And, um, I'm really confident that, you know, Levi and I will both provide enough feedback to these engineers to where this is going to be a really good product, um, going forward. So hopefully that helps you out, Adam. Appreciate it, man. Uh, let's see. The next question here is the wrench head. Um, I don't know if you're twisting wrenches on cars or twisting wrenches on bows but either way um you're asking about arrow wraps and how much overlap um is too much um or should you cut them to fit exact so with arrow wraps it's kind of a tricky deal um i'm i'm a big advocate of arrow wraps i really really like arrow wraps i think they i think you're vein adhesion with the right type of arrow wrap is so much cleaner um the way you can remove wipe the glue off without it instantly bonding to the carbon you know your excess glue um just the way it cures um i think removing those veins later all that stuff is super relative um we've actually got the knock on wraps now available on the website um, it's been really hard to keep them in, and I've actually got some new styles coming 
Um, but with that, we're going to have some new diameters. Now, the ones that we have right now on the website are really the exact same ones that I have on my hunting arrows. So it's really going to be for a six millimeter or a five millimeter um, arrow. So it'll be for like an axis, an FMJ, um, or the six millimeter axis or six millimeter FMJ. So I like when it comes to actual overlap, the main thing is you don't want to have too much overlap to where you're not able to have your overlap directly between your veins. You know, you, you depending on the diameter of your shaft, you're going to have a certain spacing between all of your fletchings. And you really don't want to have it to where one of your fletching is going to be laying cockeyed on there um, because of the fact that the, the overlap is too much. Um, so I really like to have one where the overlap is fairly minimal um, or in some cases I've had some where it's cut so perfect there actually isn't an overlap. Um, so that would be ideal. Main thing is too much overlap is when you start to not be able to have your overlap between your fletchings. If it's causing a, one of your fletchings to be cockeyed or sitting uneven, um, that's kind of a trouble area. There's a possibility there that that fletching will actually, um, you know, the variance in how that fletching leans will start to uh, cause a variance in how uh, that arrow um, flies as well. So um, next question here is from uh, from Daniel and Daniel Giel. He's actually from South Africa. Um, this is a very good question. This question actually came up yesterday um, on a call that I made um, with someone that uh, had ordered a, a release and kind of asked me about this question. But he's saying, are there any tips on how to maintain and clean the knock to it and silverback, um, especially on um, after several hunts? Uh, I can see that a cleanup is necessary from dust. Um, any tips would be appreciated. So there's a couple things here. One, um, this is a very valid question. Um, so I'm actually going to do... I'm going to do a video on how to properly maintain your release just to show you all um, how to do it. But there's a few things there. One, um, you know, certain areas like where Daniel's at, there's a lot of red dust down in South Africa. There's a lot of this red dust that's like super fine. It's almost like it's almost like graphite. It just seems to get in everything. And I remember when I would be down there and you would have your, your bow and you would travel around in the buggies, um, this dust would get up and it would stick to things just from static. And it would stick even on your cable rod. And what would happen is as you shot, the your cable rod and your slide going on that rod back and forth it would start to grind off the smooth polish on your carbon rod and it would start to your your um your cable slide would start to chatter and that really affects groups so having that dust it's important to always try to remove it and wipe it off as much as possible um one thing that i see and the one of the reasons why you know i've always hunted my, I've always had that little release pouch on my hip. Um, that release pouch serves a pretty important purpose. Um, the importance is I'm not always walking around with my release out because 
you know, when it comes to small movable parts like that, dirt, grime, dust, mud, all that stuff, if it's if it gets inside of it totally, then yeah, it will definitely need um, a cleaning. It shouldn't penetrate that far in there. Main thing is um, a small little air container, like an air can. Those are really valuable to have, and you don't really have to do it often, but especially if you go on a hunt like that, throwing one of those little um, compressed air cans in there to be able to dust that off um, or to just do it as soon as you come home from your trip is pretty valuable. Um, if you take a, a paper towel and just barely dampen it enough to where you can wipe those things down at the end of the night, you know you don't want to do it so much to where you saturate it and you end up getting rust on a part. Um, but you know, just wiping it down helps a lot. The main thing is, you know, if you're if you're always adding oil to it, oil does adhere. You know, any type of dirt or grime is going to adhere to to a type of oil. So, if you need small amount of oil just for like a squeaky spring or something like that, that's understandable. But as little as possible is kind of the key there. Um, but I do need to put together a video just showing you how to do this. Um, I don't know. I need to check with Carter about whether or not it, it affects your warranty by people starting to do their own maintenance on a brand new release. Obviously, if there's an issue, Carter backs it, which is why I'm letting Carter build these for us. Um, you know, if there's ever any problems at all, you can just send it back and, and they'll take care of it. Um, but if it's to the point where you've had it a while and you do want to start to maybe change out your springs or even change out your rocker parts, you know, they are, depending on how much you shoot, they are where, you know, they're not really that wearable, but they will wear over time. They're hardened steel, so they shouldn't, they shouldn't wear, um, that much. But, you know, if you're someone that's putting, um, a few hundred arrows through your bow every single day and you have one release and you're using that single release all the time, then, you know, once a year or once every other year, it's worth, uh, just getting that, getting that release maintenance, um, and opening it up. So there's a way to open up the carters. Um, what you essentially do is you take the screws that are on the side of the casing. Um, you back those screws all the way out. And once you do that, actually, then turn them about three quarters of a turn in, um, back in. And what that'll do is the three uh, holes or the three um, things that are on the side of your release, all of them will, you know, they'll be sticking out probably a quarter inch um, once you've backed them all the way out and then tighten them in about three quarters of a turn. Um, so what that does is that allows you, um, to actually open this casing. And the way to do that is if you take that release and you pretty much slap it down on its side, directly onto those screws, um, what'll happen is the force of you slapping it straight down flat so that all three of those screws are contacting a surface at the same time, it'll split that casing apart. And once the casing's apart or, you know, there's a gap there, you can remove those screws and then you can kind of, you know, carefully pry that casing apart and you'll expose um, the internals of that release. And you can use a Q-tip, 
You can wipe it clean, you know, try to keep everything where it's at, but get all the dirt and grime out of there. Wipe everything clean. Some of them, you know, you'll actually be able to slide them off. They've got these little small dial pegs in there. You can slide them off the pegs. There, there'll be a cocking lever, there'll be a jaw, and there'll be a rocker arm. Um, you can remove those off there and clean them, set them right back, you know. And what I would recommend is, well, one of the most important things is when you do this, do it inside of a baggie. Um, if you do this when you're not inside of a baggie and you go to pry that thing apart, if there was a spring in there just sitting on the edge and that spring shoots out across the room and you hear it kind of bounce off a few different things in your room, that thing is gone forever and you may not know what spring shot out of there. So um, do it inside of the baggie. You can put it in a one-gallon Ziploc bag, zip it shut, slap it down, then you can unzip it to reach your hand in there and pry that thing apart. When you pry it apart, try to keep it laying on its side so that when you open it, you know, once you start to crack it, you'll see that all of the um, the internal parts will be laying kind of on one side of the of the release or the other. So, you know, depending on what side they're laying on, flip it over to where gravity, you know, will keep those parts down you know you don't want to pull it apart and all your parts are facing down to the ground where they're going to as soon as you separate it they all fall straight down to the ground you know turn it upside down to where those parts stay in there and you'll be able to see it a lot better um and it you know it's it's really really simple um i've also got an article i did years ago on maintenance um of the carter release that I could put out there for you, but um, in relation specifically to the Noctua and Silverback, um, I'll do a video and it'll be much easier for you guys to, to follow along. But I will say, um, try to try to be careful. Um, don't mar any of the parts in there. Don't lose a spring. Don't stretch a spring out or compress a string too much because that's going to give you some some issues. If you've got something where you feel like um, for some reason, it's not cocking properly or something like that before you try to do it yourself. It's just really easy to get it to Carter. They'll pay to send it back to you. Um, you know, just get it done that way. Be important. Uh, next question here is from Nick Jitsu. He's saying, um, how important is a good stabilizer? The prices range from 30 bucks to 200 bucks. So... Yeah, that's an awesome question, dude. Um, stabilizers are one of these things where, um, you know, people have a lot of different opinions on what they want out of a stabilizer. Um, I really feel like for me, I like a stabilizer for a couple reasons. One, I like a stabilizer um, on my hunting bow specifically. I have a stabilizer to where... It's pretty much at a length, which most of mine are about 10 inches, to where when I set my bow straight down on the ground, the stabilizer touches and it keeps my sight off the ground by about an inch or two so that my sight pins aren't digging into mud or sticks or crap that's right close to the ground. Um, because a lot of times when I'm walking around, I'm holding my bow by the string and then I set it straight down to the ground. The stabilizer is actually like a protector. It's almost like a kickstand. Um, so I really like a length that, that is that way. Um, 
But I also like a stabilizer that has functionality and that actually reduces vibration and sound. Um, some people don't pay as much of attention to that. Some people get these stabilizers and they just have solid disc weights on the end that don't have any movement um, for them to to work. And I'm just not a I'm not a big fan of that. I actually like um, I like being able to have a stabilizer that that changes the sound of my bow or the frequency of that vibration and deadens that frequency. Um, so, you know, for example, like right now, um, I've been shooting fuse stabilizers um, for quite a while. I'm shooting the fuse torch stabilizer, and I'm shooting um, the 10-inch torch, um, but I'm actually shooting an older style, um, an older style uh, rubber part on it. And in the past, and the reason I do that, it's like a doinker. And I'm trying to think. Um, I know it goes on one of the, a certain one of the stabilizers. Um, and I'm trying to remember which one it was. But it was an older model stabilizer. Um, but I'm actually using that end piece on it because it has like a doinker type piece of rubber. And the weight is on the outside of that rubber, so it actually lets the vibration dissipate really quickly out the end of the stabilizer without sending that tone and that feedback back towards your hand. But, you know, Fuse also makes, um, and the torch is, is at a reasonable price, it's not too high, but um, Fuse also makes a little economy stabilizer called um, the Flex Blade. And it's more or less just, you know, molded rubber. And I used that Flex Blade um, several years ago as well. And I really liked it. It's it's actually a stabilizer that comes standard um, with some of the, uh, the kit bows. So if you are on a budget, you know, that would be one to look for as well. Now, some people really like to just have the extra weight of stabilizers, um, helps them for stability. And if you're the type of person that likes to weigh down your stabilizer, then um, there's a couple things. One, your price is going to be higher um, for a stabilizer of that type. And the reason is, is because, one, the carbon that they use and also the importance of their um, they're machined parts that normally will fit on each end of the carbon. Um, those tolerances have to be pristine because if there's any gapping between your carbon tube when it's inserted into a collar, um, if there's any gapping, it'll slowly start to crack and it'll just slide out of there from the vibration. So really high quality carbon and then high quality fittings on the end are really important. And then also, there's there's quite a bit of cost in the types of weights that people use. If you have, you know, if you're getting like stainless steel or fully machined end weights, there's costs involved with those too. So some of the stabilizers that you see that are higher in price, you know, they've got high quality parts, but they also have um, high quality attachments. So all that stuff starts to to factor in. If you're not really that big on having a tremendous amount of weight or being able to want to have to add weight and remove weight, then you're going to be able to get away with a stabilizer that just 
really feels good on your bow from a vibration point of view. And if you're in an archery shop, stabilizers give you feedback pretty dang fast. Um, you know, you can put some on there and immediately you're going to say, wow, that feels a lot better when I shoot it. And some, it'll almost change the sound or change, um, it'll almost, you know, kind of sounds like a tuning fork. Sometimes you can have one bow with one stabilizer and when you shoot it, it's like, and then the next one will be like, um, and all that is directly related to that stabilizer. So that's one of the benefits to being able to go into a shop is being able to just, you know, and that's what's great about a stabilizer. It's not like it's tough to uh, to take it off or put it on your bow. You just screw one off, screw one on, try it, screw it off, screw it back on, and you're going. Um, I personally try to keep my target stabilizers fairly simple. Um, like I said, I've got a 10-inch stabilizer with like um, a rubber doinker type thing on the end. Um, and it's actually an older uh, fuse rubber part. I forget what stabilizer it's off of. I stole it off one of my older stabilizers just because I really like it. Um, but even the fuse blades, um, they were awesome too. But the stabilizer I'm shooting now is actually a lower cost stabilizer than some of the ones that I still have but that I shot in the past. Um, and I've been just as happy with them. But again, I'm getting... The frequency and the deadening, uh, the deadening that I want out of it when it comes to target stabilizers, same thing. Um, certain ones, if you're the person that wants to add a lot of weight, um, you're definitely going to need a stiffer carbon. You're going to, you know, you're probably going to need a higher end carbon rod. Whereas if you're someone that doesn't shoot a whole bunch of end weight and you're just looking for frequency dissipation then finding um a, like a rubber doinker attachment that'll screw on the end and then you put your weight on the end of that rubber piece um that's really the best way for dissipation for sure um let's see next question here is from uh let's see i don't know how to pronounce this one kelly kelly gal ski m kelly galskim Something like that. I don't know if it's first and last name or first or last name, first initial. I don't know how you've put it together, but either way, that's it. So the question here is practicing long distance versus bail blinds, which are, um, or blank bail. Yeah, sorry. I've got hunting on my mind. Um, I'm looking outside right now and I see the sun coming up and actually my ADD was kicking in. Even though I'm, I'm mentally in this podcast with you, I just instantly started deciding whether or not turkeys were gobbling on the roost. So I was I was thinking turkeys, and then I thought, well, if they are gobbling, I need to be in my bail blind. So I combined that for you. But practicing long distance versus blind bailing, which is more beneficial? Well, those are you know it's this that's a question kind of like saying. Um, you know, what's more beneficial for you, CrossFit or kettlebell workouts? Um, they're both beneficial. They're beneficial in different ways, and they're beneficial in ways depending on, you know, the, how much of a benefit that is will really depend on where you're at and what your application is. If you're a target archer and you're wanting to start competing in World Cups, then I'm going to tell you 
it's important for you to learn to shoot at distances. Obviously, that's really important. Um, however, if you've got target panic and you struggle with aiming more than execution, then blind bailing is going to be an equal importance to your distance. If you're just a hunter and you make good shots and you know you really are getting bored um, shooting all the time at closer distances, then longer distances are great because they will start to magnify your mistakes. And that's the great thing about shooting at distance is when you're shooting good, it's very apparent. When you're shooting bad, it's also very apparent. Um, you know, your mistakes get magnified. So it's sometimes hard when you're shooting at 20 and 30 yards and you've got an arrow that's one inch out of the group. It's hard to really understand um, how far that would have been off the the group if you were, say, you were shooting in a competition and you had uh, a 50 meter shot in the wind or something like that. So I'm a huge advocate of both. Um, just like, you know, when it comes to my workouts, uh, yesterday, um, yesterday at my workout, I'll just give you this as an example. Yesterday, um, my workout routine, and actually it'll be, it'll be the same thing. As soon as I'm done with this, I'll kind of, um, do a different variation, but virtually the same. So yesterday, uh, when I went on my workout, I actually, um, didn't drive to town. I rode to town. So I jumped on my bike ran about or uh, rode about seven miles um, on my bike into uh, the gym when I got to the gym uh, I actually right away went um, went heavy on dumbbells I was doing I did chest shoulders and tricep triceps yesterday um, I actually did dumbbells I like dumbbells just because um, you know it it allows you to to stabilize and really I think it helps build symmetrical strength. Um, so I really did a lot of dumbbell work yesterday. Um, but as soon as I did my dumbbells heavy, I immediately went to um, light kettlebells with very super slow movements. Um, all of my shoulder work I actually did with kettlebells. But then for my tricep work, um, I actually did all my tricep workout with a cable machine um, and I varied that between heavy and um, high rep so heavy low low rep and then light super light with high rep so really my workout yesterday um, and when I came when I rode into town I rode at a very fast pace I almost um, pretty much sprinted on my bike got there took me about 45 minutes to do um, my chest, I did three variations of chest with, with my dumbbells. Um, then I went right into kettlebell work for all of my shoulders. I did lighter weight, but super slow controlled movements. Um, and then once I was done with my shoulders, I went into the, to the, you know, a lot of the machines for my triceps. Some were heavy, some were light, uh, fast paced. Um, and then, I ended up, when I rode home, I took a longer way home, and I rode for a longer amount of time. I did about nine miles on the way back, but um, I just rode at more of a comfortable pace, um, mainly just so I was actually just engaged in cardio for longer. So 
you know, I utilize both and I think that's critical. I think to find proper balance, you know that you may need one um, for a certain aspect of your shooting, but the other one complements it. And, you know, this this is what's so cool about um, the two releases that I have out right now. And I don't want to sound like a, like a sales pitch, but this is super important because, you know, some people feel like they really have to pick and choose whether they shoot a silverback or, you know, a tension release or whether they shoot a hinge or whether they shoot a, a target release. So there's a couple things there and it really depends on how you're looking at your form of training. Now, if you're wanting consistency and repeatability and you're someone who's just really got your eye focused on wanting to really zero in your highest score possible and you're a target archer and you're shooting you know you're shooting 50 meters or 70 meters or 18 meters whatever you're you're shooting for your score you're wanting to just get to be as high of a uh, score as possible if that's where you're at then in that case I would say really focus on while you're doing your main shooting at your distance that you score at have one release and one release only that you get to know so well to where you can you under you're literally understanding tenths of a pound difference when it comes to your preload on the trigger or how much tension you have on the trigger or your finger position you know really learning that is important um but equally important to that is going through your shots properly and firing through your shots with proper execution and form. And that's where like the silverback comes in. You know, there's certain people I've got students right now, all they shoot is a silverback hundred times, hundred percent of the time they shoot in competition, everything. And arguably they get to be some of the best in the world because they're able to be so repetitive I mean, 100% repetitive, they're shooting the same thing every time. And you can do the same thing with a knock to it if you don't ever struggle with anticipation and you're focusing on execution by pulling through the shot and you never have that single glimpse of anticipating or wanting to make the shot happen. Now, if you're someone that's kind of in between where sometimes, you know, sometimes you feel like you're aiming more than others, sometimes you feel like you can pull through good, um, sometimes you feel like you're anticipating the shot. So that person is the perfect candidate to have both. And um, a few weeks ago, I had two of my students here. And what I told both of them was, you know, we're going to we need to start out the day with the silverback. Um, you know, we don't really have to sight in with it. Um, this is the perfect time to just start out your day with a blank bail. Get out there. Um, really focus on shooting, you know, 30, 50 good shots with your silverback on a blank bale and just really get, you know, get all those muscles warmed up good, coming into your anchor solid, tip of the nose on the string, letting off that safety, just pulling through that, that bow and pulling that elbow to that wall behind you and just getting that shot to break and bow arms going forward release hands coming back 
and you just learn to get this stroke and you're just going through this form and you, you know you're just really starting to get the flow and the feel of that and then once that happens well now you're able to actually go to a distance especially if you want to go to a longer distance and you're able to pull out you know your your thumb release pull out your knock to it and now you're able to pull back and you've you know you've been executing with this blank bail for you know for a couple ends you've really been focused on shooting through and pulling through waking everything up now you're able to just focus on you know getting that pin on that target and getting that thumb on the trigger and then just starting to go through that same motion that you were doing on that blank bail and you're going to find that those shots are just firing so much easier and it just seems so simple to execute those shots because you've done it that way. And this is an important um, tip as well. One of the things that I taught Bailey when she was here and one of the exercises that I did um, was I kind of intentionally, I intentionally had Bailey and Lucy shooting together at different times of the day because certain people um, are certainly more apt to be in um, in tune with their shooting during different times of the day and this is important for any type of athlete is being able to recognize when their body is at its you know it's alert and it's at its peak performance because it will vary for certain athletes and there's certain training techniques that I do that help identify that. And once I do identify that with my students, I'm able to point certain things out to them and then also tailor their routine or their practice regimen to where they maximize um, their body's alertness and their alertness time. So one thing that was critical with Bailey was that she really had to learn to start anytime she shot in the morning she really had to start her shooting out with the silverback for execution because you know she was still a little bit sluggish and there was um there was there was more need for wake up so that is definitely a wake up call um you know it's it's no different than for me it's the exact same um I know that I'm lifting heavy. I want to lift, I'm lifting heavy for, you know, I kind of picked out one month where I'm lifting heavy right now. Um, so because of that, I don't want to be cold and I need to be awake when I get to the gym. I can't really be motivated or kind of in the mindset of going there and pushing heavy weight when I'm not alert. So that is why, you know, even though it's cold out, I'm getting on my bike and I'm riding in. Um, instead of doing my cardio following, I'm actually doing some cardio ahead of time because, you know, that brisk bike ride in is actually getting me woke. So I'm able to go in there and not dilly dally around. I'm able to get in the gym and, and be 100% ready at that particular time to do that. So, um, both are important, man. Equally important. It just depends what you're going for. You know, if you're really wanting to 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 maximize your ability as a hunter and and magnify um, mistakes that you can then improve on, shooting distance is really important. The main thing is, and this is this is kind of one of the things 
that I want to tell you, and one of the reasons why the blank bailing is such an important aspect to shooting long distance is when people go to long distance or when people go to smaller aiming dots, their ability to pull through the shot starts to lessen. And what I found is the timing of your shot slows way down. So I want to warn you to where you really want to get in your cadence. And if you're shooting long distance, still talk through that cadence in your head. You know, come up with some type of a mantra or some type of account to where when you pull back, you know, say you were blind bailing with your silverback and you let off the safety and you're pulling and saying 1002 1003 and it was going off when you switch to your long distance make sure you keep that same count to where essentially you want to be able to have that shot go off with that same timing you don't want to all of a sudden now be aiming for four seconds because you're aiming and you're worried about being super finite on your front pin hold position because it's longer distance you really want to keep that timing that sequence the same um you know you're just literally shooting at a longer distance is all um let's see next question here is from uh nk skulls it's asking about silverback springs so the 30 pound is too light and the 43 pound um, pulls my pin off the target uh, my bow is a carbon element, set at 63 pounds. If I turn up the poundage, um, will that fire the bow with less movement? Please help. So, you know, with your with those releases, you've got a tremendous amount ability to adjust them. Um, you know, you're able to put in those different springs, but with those different springs, you can tighten or weaken each of those springs. You know the the screw in the back of the release um, allows you to to compress or relax those springs tremendously. There's a there's quite a bit of movement, so you should certainly be able to find one that's in between. Um, ideally, I end up being at about three pounds over my holding weight. Um, you know, I essentially want to be able to let off the safety and start my pull for about three seconds before that release is going off. That's kind of where I like mine to be. And I like to to have a slow, gradual build as I pull through. Now, when you're first learning, I definitely have people shooting their silverbacks a lot stiffer than what, um, what they're going to settle on. But the importance of why that why I do that is because a lot of people just don't understand the finesse and the feeling of their back wall and you know how to pull on that back wall just enough to where when you're letting off the safety you haven't pulled too much this time or you're not on your back wall hard enough to where the release wants to keep going forward a lot of people really struggle with that so by having the release set a little higher you know I'm kind of just eliminating those mistakes you don't want it to where as soon as you start to let your finger off that safety, sometimes the release goes off because that tells me right there that your your holding weight or your your preload, um, which is how much you're pulling against that stopped wall of your cam, um, it tells me that that's varying. Um, so you definitely don't want the release set so stiff to where it's like pulling you off the target. Um, to get to execute 
Um, but you also don't want it to where as soon as you're letting your finger off, it's firing either. Um, you know, one of the one of the things with the silverback is you really have to you really have to dedicate some time to it and some some understanding of what that is. And if you're the type of person that changes, just like what I talked about earlier in this podcast with with Ryan, you know, when you're working on certain aspects of your form, I call it selective cycling. And what I mean by that is, you know, like for example, right now in the weight room, I'm just trying to strengthen to, you know, get back some of my overall power strength. Um, that, you know, a lot of times I, I lift a little bit heavier in the spring. Cause I always, I personally feel like, um, this is something that I was taught by Frank Zane is that, you know, the body is much like the seasons. Um, you know, there's times where your body grows, there's times where it's just maintaining and it's trying to, you know, stay dormant and prepare and heal. Um, and there's, you know, and there's times where it's, you know, being exerted, it's being depleted. Um, but, but spring is a growth time. Um, spring is a growth phase. So that's why I always spend my springs going heavier in my lifting and demanding a lot more. And then as I move into summer, I'm going to be doing a lot more shooting. I'm going to be doing a lot more, um, endurance type stuff preparing for my hunting seasons to come and then during my hunting season during fall I'm just kind of in this you know I'm slowly working out but a lot of my workouts will be um, kind of when and if I can get them in and then once winter comes um, you know I'm really kind of in a in a maintain mode Um, you know I do a lot of finesse stuff in the winter time Uh, A lot of times my muscles are colder, so I'm not doing much heavy stuff. I'm just doing finesse, trying to do overall body stuff. So with archery, it's the same way. You want to, you really want to just minimize the things that you're working on. Identify something you need to work on and then work on that. Don't like try to do too many things at one time because it starts to complicate. And what will happen is, you're going to try to do 10 things better and what will happen is you're going to have one or two or three things that are going to kind of cloud up the other five or six things and you'll end up not doing any of them as good as what you could. You're going to do everything mediocre. Um, so my selective cycling, and this ha- this is relative to the silverback, is you know if you know that you're wanting to get through your execution and how you function through your release and getting rid of your target panic, then that's not the time to be trying different stabilizer rate weights, trying to, you know, I want to shoot 23 diameter arrows today. I've been wondering how such and such works. Um, because all that stuff starts to make you not really understand whether or not you're improving or not improving. You have to minimize the types of things that you're attacking and really focus on doing one thing well and really improving and advancing one thing to the point where you're 100% confident and you're 100% okay with that you're doing it right and it feels consistent. 
um, because then you can move on to another thing to attack and you're not trying to do too many things at once. That's why a lot of times when I work with students, I don't really prefer to work with them over a very extended period of time. And that's why when this new website gets going and your ability to actually interact with me with lessons, um, you know, through through video and through um, web conferencing, you know, I like doing it that way because it lets me give you one or two things to work on for a certain amount of time. And then once I see people get to a level to where they're able to to maybe come and have a one-on-one experience, some of these minimal things are out of the way, and I'm not um, I'm not having these minor changes on things that are that take time to evolve and take time to adapt to. Because you know sometimes archers come, they want to come for three days, but one small little change in their form, and all of a sudden they're utilizing some stability muscle in their shoulder that they've never activated before and they can you know they're absolutely fatigued and not executing good shots within 100 arrows so you know being able to identify and get get you at you know this this certain level to where then we can just pick on these one things at a time okay let's take let's take a month and just do this one month all i want you to do is this Okay, next month, all I want you to do is this. All I want you to do is this. And what you're going to find is each month when we take your weakness and we make it your your strength, each time that that happens, you just start to put one more new piece of armor on your ability to be um, just, you know, an overall archery warrior, so to speak. You know, you keep adding this one little piece to where it starts happening from a subconscious point of view and it's happening without you really having to focus on it and you're doing it the right way and what you'll find is you're going to be doing a lot more small things right and you know one thing I've learned as an athlete is it's always the small things the small things are always the determining factor in the games the small things are always the determining factors in the outcome so I always just focus on the small things and They all come together. Um, Next question here is from uh, A.T. Tracy Abbott. uh, LOL. (laughs) I have an old Carter Colby release that originally had a rope on it. I took the rope off and just hook it to my D-loop and rotate it to make it fire. Um, Would I be more accurate with a normal hinge style release? um, The answer is no. I don't think that you would. Um... If you're feeling travel and you're anticipating the travel from that spike, you know, or I'm assuming you have a solid hook, um, because this could actually be a couple of things. If you're talking about you had to rope um, and that you took it off, so there was an original Colby spike that had a solid head that you flipped the the loop um, or you flipped the the fast flight loop that was attached to the release around your bowstring. And then hooked it on the onto the spike, and then as you rotate it, it would just slide off the spike. Essentially, that's the same thing as a hinge release. Only the hinge release pivots, and the hinge release allows you to hook directly onto your D loop. So it's not really the same thing. The difference is you may feel more travel 
um, depending on your your spike and how you have it set and if you're anticipating it all then I would say yes you could be more accurate with a release that you're not anticipating but overall that's a pretty bulletproof release and actually in my quiver um, I have a Colby so an original Colby is actually the release that Randy Ulmer gave me at the time it was called a Revenger and then it came back as a Colby um, but my original one was a was a Revenger or a Colby handle with with um, with a an actual um, uh, pivoting head. You could get it with either the spike or the pivoting head. Uh, mine particularly had a pivoting one, and I had to set it to where I didn't have any travel, and then I was cool with it. Um, let's see here. Last question, and then I've got a jet. I got. I, want, I always want to make sure I'm up there for Little Dud's uh, breakfast. So, uh, next I've got John underscore Casey says buying a 37 inch Hoyt prevail tomorrow with the SVX cams. What site AeroRest arrows would you suggest any items I should look at in particular? So, Hey dude, we're, uh, we're bros right now because I've actually got a 37 inch prevail, um, sitting right here next to me right now and um, I had it with x3 cams I'm actually putting the SVXs on it um, so we're gonna be like um, we're gonna be like bow bros as long as yours is green um, but if not I forgive you but um, yeah so with the site you know right now with mine I'm I'm actually shooting the Sherlock one is what I'm shooting um, with a 29 millimeter um, scope on it. Uh, I've been kind of bouncing back and forth between shooting a, a, uh, a red fiber up pin and shooting, um, a black dot, uh, just depending on what I'm doing. I've actually been doing quite a bit of 3d shooting here. I'd shot in, I did a lot of indoor shooting. Um, and I loved that bow. Um, depending on the type of, uh, shooting you're going to be doing with it, I can tell you that for my indoor and also for my 3D, um, these Easton Superdrive 23s are freaking shooting lights out. Um, if you're if you're a 3D shooter and you're looking indoor, so really anything like 50, 50 yards or less, you know, minimal wind, um, kind of you know looking for a decent diameter shaft, but not something too crazy. Uh, this Superdrive 23 has been awesome. Um, uh, when it comes to the arrow rest, I'm, I'm telling you, I love the elevate arrow rest. Um, actually just made a, a few, um, calls yesterday to Greg Poole. We talked about a few, um, few little minor things I'm going to do on the elevate, mainly changing the package. And then this thing's going to start being ready for, um, to head out to dealers and everything. Um, but that elevate rest is awesome. It really gives you the ability to shoot any which way that you want. Um, I've got, I've actually got two setups right now. So on my Prevail 40, I'm shooting a freak bar um, with the whale tail. So I'm dri- I'm using a limb driven uh, setup, which is totally like unorthodox. So I've got a freak bar with a limb driven setup and this is awesome for me 
um, for being able to shoot these SuperDrive 23s. I'm shooting a three inch or a three fletch of a Max Pro, so the little Max Pro vein. Um, that vein's been been really good. I get great clearance with it. I can shoot a really good offset, so my arrow's spinning really well coming out of the bow. And I've actually got my front sight um, set about maybe about three quarters of the way out on my on my shorter extension bar. So my front sight is almost equal in the front of my bow as where my whale tail's sitting behind the bow, um, and it's shooting awesome. So. Uh, but on my other bow that I've got, I've actually got it set up to where I, I'm not shooting the limb driven. I'm just shooting uh, right off a launcher blade. Uh, and it's shooting really well, too. I'm shooting the standard lizard tongue in a ten thousandths. And um, I'm actually shooting uh, some pro fields. Um, I don't, I've got pro fields from several years ago, the Eastern pro fields, and I've really been happy with them. Um, I can tell you for uh, a bow I set up for a buddy of mine, um, I set him up with some ACGs, and they sh they shot really, really, really good too. Um, so that's my particular setup. If you're really wanting a true target shaft, um, then I guess at that point, you know, an ACE would definitely give you some some great speed. Um, otherwise, if you're not factoring in speed and you just want a killer long distance setup, something for maybe some outdoor field rounds, some marked field rounds and things like that, then I would say um, maybe look at a at one of the Eastern Pro Tours. Um, super, that'd be a dynamite setup, man. I'm telling you, be good. Um, other than that, that's about it. That's how mine's set up. And there's a ton of other good questions here. I'm actually not gonna, um, I'm not gonna like your your question if I haven't answered it yet. That way, I can come back here and uh, do another podcast and answer it. Uh, it's gonna be a pretty busy day today. Um, doing a lot of work trying to get all this stuff loaded for the dang website um, and get things organized. There's so much with video editing right now, it seems impossible. Um, but uh, the other thing too is I'm going to be doing a podcast later on today with Peterson's Bow Hunting. I'm going to be podcasting for Peterson's Bow Hunting with Christian Berg. So be on the lookout at the Peterson's Bow Hunting page or look out for that podcast. I really have no idea what Christian and I are going to talk about. Um, so that could possibly be, um, super entertaining or not. Um, maybe depending on if I open up wine beforehand, but, uh, anyway, appreciate it, everyone. Keep your eye out for the silverback mini, if that's of interest and, uh, appreciate everything you guys do to support what we're doing. No question about it without you guys and gals. Um, we certainly wouldn't be where we're at with knock on it's all because of you so thanks everybody have a good day be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock on lifestyle clothing knockonarchery.com